Welcome. We're so glad you're here. My name's Gene Sherman, and I'm the rector of Christ Church West Shore, as well as having the privilege and calling to be the dean of the Cleveland Deanery of the Anglican Diocese of the Great Lakes. And I welcome you here today to our first annual Cleveland Deanery Ministry Day, which we hope will be a long-standing tradition in our deanery where we encourage one another, get to know one another, and get equipped to make disciples who make disciples who make churches. And we plant churches all over the area through faithful discipleship together. And so we're glad you're here. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedules and your Saturday to be with us. But I think as we hear from our bishop is here, freshly back from our Anglican Provincials Assembly to teach us about a mission-shaped community and how we can be more missionally minded as Anglican Christians. And we're just really excited that you're here so much. If you're wondering, what is our deanery? Well, we've got five churches in our deanery. We've got going from the west to the east. You've got Christ Church West Shore out in Avon Lake. You've got Lakewood Anglican here, which meets here, and we're grateful for their hospitality today. You've also got uh, Whitefields and Grand River. You know, Greg Heath is the vicar there as well. We also got Bread of Life in Painesville, as well as St. Anne's in Madison. And so we got people from all over the area here today, and we're glad you're here. And so I turn it now over to my good friend and, and partner in crime, uh, the, the, the vicar of Lakewood, as I affectionately call him, Sean Templeton. <laughs> you. Let us pray. Lord, that's exactly what we do with you today as we behold you, our God, seated on the throne, and you are holy, holy, holy. And we thank you, Lord, that in your holiness you reach out to us in your mercy and grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We ask, Holy Spirit, you would descend upon us today. Be with us. Fill our Bishop Ron as he teaches us how we might effectively and fruitfully minister among our culture across the Cleveland area. And Lord God, may this day be the beginning of a great work around this city for years to come and we would be able to say we were there and you showed up among us as we sought your face. For in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. I, I got to confess, you know, I, I really wanted to be in Plano, Texas with Bishop Ron and our delegation. I just wasn't able to this year. And I was speaking with our bishop yesterday, and I said, well, next five years from now, you know, we're going to take a contingent from Christchurch because this is a glorious gathering because bishops from all over the world were there. 
And I wasn't able to, on, on Monday night when they had the, the opening Eucharist, um, I wasn't able to watch it live, but they record all these things. These things are all up on the Anglican Church North American YouTubes, and I encourage you to go watch this. Because the opening Eucharist was this glorious celebration of what the Lord's done in us over 10 years in the Anglican Church in North America. And I'm watching this procession of bishops. I mean, it is a lot of dudes in a lot of clothing, all right? Walking in this glorious church in Christ Church, Plano. And I'm watching, and I go, oh, I know that guy. I know that guy. Oh, there's Bishop Ben Kwashi, yay. And then I saw my bishop. And I just, my heart leapt, and I go, Kimmy, there he is. This is what the Lord does among his people, my friends. We become cheerleaders for one another and encouragers of one another. And I just want to encourage us, as the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts today, uh, as we go forth from this event, to be encouragers and keep our relationships with one another across the deanery, as well as um, just be sensitive to continue to invite people to come along because it's an exciting time to be a Christian in America and an Anglican one. No matter what happens in our culture, he is seated on the throne. And uh, we're here to help uh, and encourage you, leaders, lay people, how we might be effective and fruitful in our day. So, Bishop, would you come share with us, sir? So, welcome. see that at all? Okay, well I'll tell you about it when we get there. Good morning. One of those days, not a problem. We have a prayer book. Yay! So praise the Lord. This was uh, used at the uh, inaugural, the 10th anniversary of the Anglican Church in North America. And uh, it is available, and it's wonderful. We, it, you will be thrilled. And one of the other things that we also have is our catechism. And one of the things that they talked about is that just because we have a prayer book and we have a catechism doesn't mean the work has stopped. The next thing they're planning to do is to do a children's catechism and then do an annotated catechism to help lay catechists and priests better be able to teach and use the catechism. So there's a lot of good stuff that still is coming. It was wonderful to be in Plano with uh, all of our bishops and people from all over the United States. It's hard to believe, but the ACNA has only been in existence for 10 years. Isn't it amazing to consider all that God has done in 10 years? 
And some of the things that we look at is that we're, we're a modest group. Uh, we have over, I think, 1,030 or 40 churches now. Uh, we're continuing to grow slowly but steadily. And even though we're a modest group, uh, our, our Archbishop Foley Beach is now the primate the, in charge of all of the whole GAFCON movement internationally. Uh, we have several of our bishops that are on the national board or the international board for GAFCON. Uh, GAFCON is that group of faithful provinces that are standing for biblical orthodoxy throughout the Anglican Communion. Uh, that's about 80% of the Anglican Communion. And so when we talk about are, is the Anglican Church in North America Anglican? The answer is we've never been anything else. And we've got a prayer book. You can't get more Anglican than that. The head of the whole international movement is who? Our presiding bishop, our Archbishop Foley Beach. And for such a modest group of folk, God is using the Anglican Church in North America in amazing, amazing ways. And one of the things that uh, you can pray for me about is uh, we have other denominations asking to be in full fellowship and communion with us. And I've been appointed to lead the ecumenical discussions with the Philippine Independent Catholic Church. It's about three million folk. And uh, they, they want to be in full communion with the Anglican Church in North America. And so I had to go up and preach in one of their con uh, congregations up in the Chicago area. And unbeknownst to me, they were live streaming the whole thing to Manila. So the archbishop and other bishops there could listen to me and see if I passed the test. So <laughs> I guess I did all right. So good things are happening. We have much to be thankful for. One of the things that uh, I am very passionate about is the whole issue of discipleship. Because if we can't learn how to do discipleship, we will not last for the long haul. And I think when some of us that came out of our former denomination, what we saw in that, in that denomination was a massive failure to disciple. And so I'm very passionate about the need, the importance of discipling. And so what I want to do today is to talk a little bit about some of the basics of discipleship and to stir the pot a little bit and we'll just see what God does with it. Now, the original, wow, can we turn that down just, is, is that too loud? Is that all right? Okay. One of the problems with talking about discipleship is it's sort of like love. Remember our former, the, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church preached at um, Megan and Her, uh, Harry's wedding. And, you know, he says it's all about love. And he never defined what love was, uh, but he says, if you have love, that's all you need. Well, there's all kinds of stuff in our culture, particularly they're called love, uh, not all of which will get you where you want to go. And so it's, love is the Christian love, which was never defined by the presiding bishop, uh, is not just an emotion. It's a way of behaving. It's something that's rooted in the person and being of God who is love. And so there's some very definite things about Christian love which are very different than the culture's aspects of love. 
The same thing is true uh, even within the church when we talk about discipleship. Because discipleship can mean about that. Almost anything and everything is called discipleship. And so what I want to focus in on today is what I believe, and you can have some other viewpoints than mine. Uh, I'm a part of a group of five, six bishops that are having ongoing discussions about discipleship. And we all have different little takes on it, but we agree on some of the, most of the basics. And so when we talk about discipleship, what do you think discipleship is? Jesus said, you know, in Matthew 28, 18, what's, what's Matthew 28, 18? The Great Commission, okay? And this is, the Great Commission is the why and wherefore of the church. It's why we are in existence. Who can say, who can recite the Great Commission? Okay. All authority has been given unto me. Go therefore. Go ahead. Okay. And so it's to go therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And so when Jesus left, prepared and ascended into heaven to return to the Father. He looked at the disciples that were gathered on the Mount of Ascension, I would think, and he said to them, go therefore into all the world. Make lots of churches, you know? Start, set up all kinds of uh, places where you can reach out to people and help them be good churchgoers. That's not what he said. Because when we think about discipleship, we, we equate discipleship with church going. But what discipleship is about isn't about being in the church, it's about doing what? Going. Going. He had the community, he had the faithful gathered, and he says, now that you're all here, I hope you enjoy it. Wait till the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. But then what it's all going to be about is I want you to go. And in the Greek, the word for go means go. <laughs> and when you get in the book of Acts, what you discover is the church stayed. And they stayed in Jerusalem. And they stayed in Jerusalem. And they stayed in Jerusalem. They were growing the church, but they never went until the stoning of Stephen and the time of persecution came. And when the time of persecution came, they went out into the world, to Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And as they went, they shared the gospel. They shared the disciple. They brought people to faith. They formed disciples. They brought people in to the family of God. And often what happens is it takes difficult things to get us out of our complacency because we have been discipled to be good churchgoers. That's not bad, but it's not enough because Jesus' vision is we would be discipled not just to be church attenders, but to be people who had the ability 
to go into the world and change the world through the power of God's love and draw people into the community of the faithful who are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the thing that's exciting about that is that in the kingdom of God, everybody gets to be a player. And so one of the problems that we have with discipleship is we figure, well, you know, uh, that's up to the priest, right? The, the, the deacons, it's their job to do all the work of discipleship so that we can sit in the church and be ministered unto. And so they are the disciplers and you are the disciple ease. But that's not Jesus' vision. Ephesians 4 says the job of the clergy, if you will, is to train and equip the saints to do the work of ministry. Who are the saints? It's you all. And so our job is to take the ministry that God has given us, the anointing that God has given us, and empower us to give it away to share with other people. Now, I want to share with you an interesting statistic about the Diocese of the Great Lakes. And you've got to be careful with statistics a little bit, but, but it's an interesting one. In the Diocese of the Great Lakes, we have about 57 churches, maybe 56, that shifts every now and then. And we have 56 churches, let's, let's say 50. We have 150 clergy. So that means, on average, in the Diocese of the Great Lakes, we have three clergy for every congregation. Do you know what our average Sunday attendance is in all of our churches, average? 34. So we have 150 clergy, 50 congregations. We have average Sunday attendance on 34. Now, what strikes you about that statistic? Pardon me? Yeah, we have a lot of clergy. And so we have more and more clergy that want to be ordained, all, people that want to be ordained all the time. And one of my concerns as the bishop is to say we're missing something here. Because in the kingdom of God, you know, if all of those clergy were doing what Ephesians 4 says we're supposed to be doing, our people would be released into ministry and we would see all kinds of things begin to grow and happen. And I believe that part of the issue in this is an issue of discipleship. Partly, number one, because most of us have never been discipled. Most clergy have never been discipled. Now, I don't mean that they haven't studied and they haven't learned good and godly things and they haven't gone to seminary. But in seminary, I was never discipled. You know? And my first couple of congregations were congregations where there was the job of the minister to minister and the congregation to congregate. That was the pattern. That's what we know. That's what we understand. And so somehow there's been a disconnect between Jesus' vision for the church and what we most people experience in the church today. 
Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, says, and this is the best definition of discipleship that I know because it's memorable, people remember it. Jesus said, uh, follow me and I will teach you how to become fishers of men or fishers of people. So follow me and I will teach you how to become fishers of men. Now, this is a very interesting phrase. First of all, it says, follow me. So whatever a disciple is about, it's about following Jesus. And so it means that a disciple is one who enters into a personal relationship with Jesus. And that means Jesus is in charge. Now, there's a great story, uh, absolutely true story, about a French tightrope rocker named Blondine. Back in the late 1800s, uh, he was the evil Knievel, for those of you that are old enough like me to remember who evil Knievel is. Uh, he, was a, he did daredevil things. And so he came to New York City from France, had to make a big name for himself, and so he decided he was going to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And so he got his agent, they got all the people gathered uh, you know, on the American side of the falls, uh, they have photos of Blondine, you know, getting ready to do this great feat of walking across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And what Blondine did is he knew he had to do something extra special to get people's attention. And he went up to his agent, I guess, and he said to him, true story, do you believe that I can walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope? What's he going to say? He said, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I believe. And then Blondine asked him again, do you really believe I can walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope? And he said, yeah. And then Blondine looked at him and said, climb on my back. <laughs> and there is a picture of Blondine in the middle above the falls on this tightrope with his big pole and clinging to him is his agent with his coattails flapping in the wind. And he did. He climbed on his back. And that's what Jesus is saying to those that would be his disciples. Do you believe that I am the Son of God? Do you believe that I have called you? And then if we say yes, then he says, climb on my back. Now the thing about climbing on Jesus' back is you go wherever he goes. Right? If the Blondine's agent or manager decided, I'm going to get off. Probably not a good choice at that moment. But the issue with Jesus is, it's about a life that is yielded. It's about a life that's connected. It's about a life that's going with Jesus. A part of what Jesus said, I will never leave you. You'll, I will be with you always. Climb on my back. And so a disciple is one that answers Jesus' call to come, follow me. And then he says, I will make you. So a disciple is a learner. A disciple is one who has climbed on Jesus' back. A disciple is one who is committed to going wherever Jesus goes. And he says, and I will teach you, or I will make you to be. That means a disciple is a learner. And that we've entered into a situation that as we walk with Jesus and we follow him, that he then begins to teach and discern, help us discern uh, 
the ways of his kingdom and the ways of the gospel. And it is a learning experience. It is a transforming experience. That means a disciple is one who is learning to live and love change. Right? How many of us love change? Mm, not so many. But if being with Jesus is all about being transformed, if being with Jesus is about being transformed into Christ's image, then it's all about change. And somehow being willing to trust Jesus enough that as we climb on his back and he begins to take us and where he knows we need to go, maybe not where we want to go, but where we need to go, then it's all about willingness to be changed. Now think about what you know about the disciples in the Gospels. Do you think Peter changed? You know? What, what do we know about Peter? He was this kind of willowy reed, not strong. And yet he became a rock on whose confession of faith the whole church was built. You know, think about all of the people that you read about in the Gospels. They're all people who climbed on Jesus' back, and they were all people who were willing to enter into change and to, into transformation. So if, come follow me, I will make you fishers of men, meaning we will enter into the mission of Jesus. And so discipleship isn't just about making me more spiritual, or filling in the gaps in my life. It does that, but that's not what it's all about. What discipleship is all about is climbing on Jesus' back, allowing him to change us so that we can then enter into the mission of Jesus, which is to change the world. And so when Jesus said to the disciples, come follow me and I will teach you to be fishers of men, they understood that what he was saying is, I'm going to change you so that you can be the kind of person that can transform the world from a place of darkness into light, a place where God's kingdom can come and his will can be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, a lot of people believe that Jesus could do that, a lot of people believe that Jesus had the power to do all kinds of amazing things. But they're not at all confident that Jesus could do those things through them. Follow what I'm trying to say? And that's what discipleship is about, is gaining confidence, confide in the Latin, with faith, so that we can do the stuff that Jesus came to do. In John 14, Jesus made this amazing statement that wrecked my ministry. Because Jesus said in John 14, if anyone, meaning just the clergy, right? No, what he says in John 14 is truly, truly I say to you, meaning this is truly true, this is really, really true, I want you to get this. This is Jesus speaking. If anyone has faith in me, they will do the work that I've been doing. 
And even greater things than these will you do. Because I'm going to go to the Father. You can ask for anything in my name. He'll do it for you. And goes on to say, and he will send to you another, the Holy Spirit, who will not only be with you, but will live in you. Now that's Jesus saying, what's Jesus' vision for anyone? Are you anyone? His vision was, his intention was, that as we climbed on his back, that we would learn to do the work that he had been doing. Now, I have to tell you, there were lots of things that I learned in seminary, but I never had a class on healing. I never had a class on spiritual warfare and deliverance. Uh, I never had a class on how to raise the dead. I'm still working on that one. <laughs> you know, uh, and what Jesus was about was training and equipping disciples to be able to carry on the ministry that he came to do, which was to establish the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And we all are players. We all are players. And so that means that what the purpose of the church is, is to train and equip the saints to do the work of ministry. Now, we had a wonderful uh, phrase that, that our deans came up with, for our last diocesan synod. And the phrase was, Sunday is not the mission. Sunday is for the mission. So whatever we do when we get together at church, whatever we do when we come together in worship, is supposed to train and equip us, fill us, enable us to have fellowship with God as we engage the sacraments, as we come together as the people of God, so that we can be equipped to do the mission. And so I love the Eucharist, absolutely, because we come with empty hands. You know, we come to feed on God's word. We assemble with God's people. We pray with each other. We worship the Lord. We come to the table of the Lord. He fills our empty hands with himself. He gives himself to us in the bread and the wine. And then as we receive the sacrament, as we're filled, then what happens? Go into the world to love and serve the Lord. Alleluia, alleluia, right? So we are fed to be sent. Sunday's not the mission. Sunday is for the mission. We are fed to be sent. And so whatever it is we do when we gather, it's supposed to be leading us to be able to go into the world and share with others what we have received in Jesus. It's wonderful. And so this is what discipleship is all about. Discipleship basically is about doing and thinking within a community of support. And when you look at how Jesus did discipleship, first of all, Discipleship was on the job. Follow me. Come on, guys. Follow me. We're going to jump into the deep end of the pool, and I'm going to teach you how to swim. Right? How does the church most often do discipleship? 
we have classes to examine what it would look like if maybe we should at some point be inclined to go out into the world and do something for Jesus. Right? That's what my experience has been. I, I'm obviously pushing here a little bit. But really, the context for discipleship isn't in a classroom. What did Jesus say to the 12? If anyone will come after me, come to me, right? And I'm going to take you to a little yeshiva. I got a nice room there. We got the Torah scrolls. We're going to have a great time. We'll sit in that room and we'll study the Torah scrolls. And as we look at what the Torah scrolls and the Talmud, you know, the teaching of the Talmud, the Tanakh and all that good stuff says, then we'll, we'll talk about what it would look like to really go out. No. Jesus took the 12 with him and said, follow me and I will teach you. So what did they do? They immediately set out. He took them with him. They went on journeys. Where was 80% of Jesus' ministry or 85% of Jesus' ministry? Only rarely was it in a synagogue. It was in the streets. It was with the people. You know, Jesus got the, the disciples into all kinds of trouble. You know that Jesus hung out with sinners? Do you know that most sinners don't go to church? Most church people, I mean, one of the, I made a mistake once of being asked to do an evangelistic mission. And one of the comments that I made is, I said, you know, I'm, I'm here. I'm so grateful that I can come and share how Jesus has changed my life. Because I know that I'm a sinner. And that one of the things we have in common is that we're all sinners in need of God's grace. When I said that, they did not like that at all. And I said to myself, we have a problem here, Houston. And so the issue with discipleship is if you're going to do biblical discipleship, how do you get people on the job? One of the wonderful things about Jesus is he always waits till we're ready before he involves us in ministry, right? That's why Sean went to seminary, because when he graduated from seminary, he knew that he knew everything that there was to know. And the second week of his ordination and his ordained ministry, he discovered there was a lot that he didn't yet know. I've been a priest for over 40 years. There's a lot I'm still learning. You know, Jesus always calls people before they're ready. And that's one reason why, is so that we will learn to walk by faith that we will have to climb on Jesus back and cling to him and say, Lord, now what do I do? And we allow the Holy Spirit to become our teacher as we enter into that situation. And so effective discipleship has to focus on being with people who together are on the job, whatever that looks like. We'll talk more about that. The second thing about Jesus discipleship. It was on the job by the book. And so Jesus was constantly quoting scripture. Remember the temptation in the wilderness when Satan was tempting him. What, how did Jesus respond to Satan? 
he began, man does not live by bread alone. You shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. He was always rooting his life and ministry in the Holy Scriptures. And so for Jesus, discipleship was on the job by the book in a team. And so discipleship always occurred in community. It's interesting that the central act of Christian worship is the Holy Eucharist. You cannot do communion alone. It involves community. It's to enable us to discover Christ in the midst of one another, in the midst of the community that we have. And so it's on the job, by the book, in a team. by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit. And so these are the four parameters about how Jesus did discipleship. First of all, he got them on the job. Why did he do it on the job? Because he knew that they had to learn what they didn't know. I remember teaching in England for seven years it's good that I, that was about five years ago, so I still remember that, so that's good. <laughs> but what I was asked to do is, as a chaplain and a, and a professor, I was a chaplain for the college, uh, I had to sit down, and I sat down with all the new students, and these were some of the best and the brightest in the Church of England. And I asked them two questions. The first question is, how did you meet the Lord? And in England, about 3% of the people go to church more than once a year, 3%. So in a country where only 3% of the people go to church, how did you meet the Lord? How did it happen for you? And the second question I asked them is, what happened in your life since you met the Lord that you want to leave your secure, well-paying, secular job for the low-stress, high-pay, prestigious position of being a vicar in the Church of England, right? And what I was asking was, how were you discipled? What happened in your life from when you met the Lord to when you've now come to this point when you want to offer yourself in service to the church and to the people that do not yet know Jesus? And what I discovered was consistently over the years that I was there is I only, in all those years, I only had one student, one, that came out of a church that had an intentional and systematic approach to discipleship. One. 30% were there because someone took an interest in them either a pastor or a mature layperson, began to draw them aside and walk with them and began to share their faith and, and their, their, their spiritual journey with that person and began to disciple them. 70%? Nothing. Now, what's wrong with this picture? These students in England today, if you're ordained, and unless you're in a city like London, the chances are you're going to have three, four, five, six, or seven churches that you're in charge of. There's no way that a pastor can pastor everybody. He can't even get to church with everybody consistently. 
And so they have to be able to disciple other people so that the people in these churches where they can't be are able to be cared for, right? How can they do that when they've never been discipled themselves? So I pointed this out to the faculty at Trinity, and then being the only American on staff, which I was very aware of, <laughs> that was fun. When I went for my interview, I was asked to come, and uh, I sat down with the faculty, and after it was all over, the principal of the college came out and said, Ron, I need to tell you that uh, you and your wife, Patty, uh, connected really well with the faculty, and they really liked you. And I said, wonderful. And he said, and they especially commented on the fact that even though you're American, you're not loud. <laughs> so I was very aware of being an American. And uh, so I pointed out to them that it's interesting at Trinity College, which at that point was the largest of the evangelical training colleges in England, uh, we don't have a single class on discipleship. And they got all defensive. They say, of course we talk about disciples. Yeah, when we study the book of Acts, you mention the word disciple. But we don't have any, any way of teaching the students actually how do you begin to do it? Because they've never had it done to them. And so you can only give away what you yourself have received. And so they said, write a paper on it. So I wrote a paper on it. And they debated it. And then they said, write a course. And so then I wrote a course. And pretty soon I wrote several courses, and they all became required. And what they were talking about was the fact that we've got to find a way of doing discipleship. Well, being an American, they use the Oxford system at Trinity, and so I have my own tutorial group. I had a group of students that I was responsible for discipling. And I noticed that in my classes there was this kind of buzz. And so I went to my tutorial group and I said, am I just being a paranoid American, or is there an undercurrent going on amongst the students in my classes? They said, oh yeah, there's an undercurrent. And I said, what's the undercurrent? And they said, well, the undercurrent is what you're teaching, they say, is good for you because you're an American. And this might work in America, but it would never work in England. And I knew immediately that I had to change the way we were going about teaching discipleship. So I went back to the faculty and told them this and said, I need to change my job description. And they said, fine, so long as you keep doing everything you're already doing. And so my wife and I went, and we took 10 students with the permission of the college, and we moved into the most secular neighborhoods in the city of Bristol in England. So we moved them from the seminary to the city. And we planted them in neighborhoods to by two. And I said, okay, guys, win this neighborhood for Christ. And then I left.
What do you think was going on in the minds of the students? On the job. Okay, where do I start? What do you do? I don't know anybody in this neighborhood. Remember in Luke 9, Jesus said to the 12, I want you to go into these towns where you've never been before, where you don't know anybody, and I don't want you to take anything with you. Go two by two, and when you go into those towns, uh, I want you to preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out the demons. You know, maybe Matthew says, look for a person of peace. But basically what Jesus was wanting them to do was to go into a place and do kingdom stuff, even though they didn't know anybody and they didn't have any resources, material earthly resources. Now that's the good news about discipleship is it doesn't cost money. It doesn't. It's an investment of time, which is often more difficult than money. But with the students I had, win your neighborhood for Christ. What happened immediately to those students? They became teachable. It wasn't just stuff, concepts they were learning here. They knew that they were going to, whatever they were learning, they were going to have to do what? Use it somehow. Figure out how to connect with the neighborhood, how to get to know the people that were there. You know, figure out, how do I do this kingdom stuff in a way that connects with people, only 3% of whom ever go to church? It was not unusual in those neighborhoods where I planted the students, where we had most of the people overwhelmingly had never been in a church, had never heard a prayer, had never seen a Bible, never heard the Lord's Prayer, never been to a worship service. Because their attitude is churches for church people, and that's not us. And so the reality is we could teach our students how to preach dynamic sermons, how to have wonderful worship services, you know, how to have great programs in the church, and it wouldn't matter. Because church is for church people, and that's not us. We were at a party, my wife and I, a New Year's Eve party for our flat. You know, and a lot of the people in our flat were young professionals. And so my wife, who knows no fear, was talking to one of the ladies that was at the party, young lady, and she said, oh, you're, you're not from here, are you? He said, no. He said, are you from America? And we said, yes. And what are you doing? Well, I'm teaching at Trinity College. What do you do at Trinity College? Well, I train people how to love and serve the community through the power of Jesus Christ. Oh, you're a Christian. Yeah, she says, I've never met a Christian before. <laughs> then Patty said, if you wanted to find out something about God, where would you go? And without even stopping for breath, she immediately said, I'd never go to a church. And Patty said, why is that? He says, that's too much commitment. If I went into a church, that's too much commitment. And then Patty said, would you go to a pub? She says, yeah, I'd go to a pub to talk about God. Neutral territory. See the problem. 
And so the issue that we have in the church is often we're trying to do things to get people to come to us where even in the United States, increasingly our culture is becoming more and more secular, where there is a disconnect between the spiritual heritage of our country and the culture in which people live. Do you follow what I'm trying to say? And so the old mode was, you know, let's try and have really good programs and things so we can attract people. The reality is, more and more, even in the United States, this is one of the things that we talked about at Provincial, the culture is increasingly hostile to Christianity. And everything we heard at Province, that the Provincial Assembly said, it's not going to get any easier. It's going to get tougher before it gets better. And so the whole issue is, how do we take the gospel to where the people are? rather than just expecting and hoping that they'll come to church, where when you bring somebody or somebody comes into church, you're hoping that your pastor really sparkles, right? So they'll be impressed enough to stay. Right? You're being polite, I understand. So the issue is, for disciples, is in our churches today, how do we get our folk on the job. How do we begin to get them uh, to a place where in a community, doing and thinking within a community of support, we can learn to do the work that Jesus did with our friends and neighbors and with the folks that we meet in everyday life? How do we begin to engage with them? And so to be a disciple, yes, Well, that's part of it, absolutely. But it's, that's an intimidating thought, because what I am talking about here is a massive change in church culture. This is, this is very difficult, and I realize this. It was difficult for me. Uh, when I graduated from seminary, I had the idea that I was the professional. My, one of my first congregations uh, was a long-standing tradition of the minister ministering and the congregation congregating. And basically what my vestry said, well, tell us what you want, Father Ron, and we'll do whatever you want. And I tried to engage them in developing ministry. I tried to engage them in saying, how can we move forward together? And that wasn't on their radar screen. So what we're talking about is a massive disconnect between what Jesus came to train and equip the 12 to do and what most people's experience in the church has been. Is this making, you know? Why don't we take a break and then we'll come back and we'll have some fun, I hope. So, Gene, what's the plan? Let's just take a 10 minute break and we'll come back and we'll do the Discipleship is all about a personal relationship with Jesus. Come follow me. I will make you. It's about transformed, being changed so that 
we can then join with Jesus in his mission, make fishers, I will teach you how to fish for people. And they then can enter into the life of discipleship. And so one of the key things that I was really pressing on is that if we're going to do the discipleship the way Jesus talked about it, being on the job makes all the difference in the world. And the problem in most churches is we do discipleship in a classroom. Uh, most churches, when they do discipleship, they do it in bits and pieces. It's Lent, and so we'll do six weeks on prayer this year. Uh, we'll do you know, something on stewardship next year. Uh, but there's not a strategic plan to help people move from point A to point B. And so the issue is, Jesus had a very clear plan in what he was about in discipleship. Jesus said, anyone who has faith in me will do the work that I've been doing. And so he was training the 12 to be able to continue the mission that Jesus began when he walked this earth and lived for 33 years among us, so that when he ascended into heaven, he would leave a group behind that would be able to continue the work that he began. And that's our job continue to do the work of the kingdom that Jesus began. And so we get to be a part of seeing the world changed. And one of the things that was exciting at the Provincial Assembly is we had bishops and archbishops from South America, and from Africa, and from Asia, uh, all there talking about how they're discipling their people, going into the most incredible circumstances, and their churches are doing what? Growing. Uh, we have a bishop that we're beginning to develop a relationship with in Burundi. Burundi is now the poorest country on earth. And so Bishop Seth uh, and I were talking, and I said, well, Bishop Seth, how many parishes do you have in your diocese? And he said, 26. I've ministered in Africa a lot. And then I said, how many congregations do you have? 240. And so those 26 congregations have planted 240, those 26 parishes have planted 240 congregations. And I said to myself, what does he know that we're still needing to learn? You know, are there stuff that, that they have to share with us? It's exciting. So the basic steps then is when we get people on the job, that's the context, uh, so that when we keep the job, the mission, as our central focus, then it changes everything else that we do. And that's very critical. And so then when we're on the job, suddenly when my students said, Lord, what do I do? And they went to the book, to the Bible, they were looking at the Bible as not just being the message book, but as being the method book. You know, Lord, what do you say about that? What, what do you have to do in me so that you can use me to help people out there? And then a lot of it was in a team. And so how do we model the kind of life, the kingdom life that people want to discover? You know, uh, is the life that we're modeling in the church so radically different and attractive that people who are outside the church, people who are lost, look at us and say, I'm not sure what they've got, but I want to experience it more. And then lastly, it's by the Spirit, because it's when you start on the job and you begin to jump in the deep end of the pool, 
that the Holy Spirit begins to raise up the issues that you need to deal with. And you can't always predict what those issues are going to be. But the Holy Spirit becomes the teacher. And it's through the Holy Spirit in a very dynamic way that Jesus says, I will be with you always. It's by the Spirit that we know the constant presence of Jesus. So this is called the triangle of transformation in basic discipleship. And so for one of it, the first part is adopting the narrative of Jesus, meaning the teaching of Jesus, that Jesus begins to lay out the vision. And uh, one of the reasons why this is important is that this begins to begin to reveal to us what the possibilities are for our lives and for our ministry. What did Jesus teach? What did he want us to know? And so uh, Paul says, be transformed, therefore, by the renewing of your mind. And so it's as we begin to hear the narrative of Jesus that we begin to understand the nature of the kingdom and we begin to then begin to see the possibilities for our lives. Another thing is creating space for enjoying soul training exercises. When we talk about discipleship, often what we're talking about is spiritual disciplines. And spiritual disciplines are good, but what spiritual disciplines are really about is making space in our lives for the Holy Spirit to work. And that's one of the big issues because the big issue for many of our people today is time. I don't have time to take on all this other stuff. There's not space in my life to be able to do these other things. And so, you know, one of the things about discipleship is it needs to be intentional and it needs to be strategic. It needs to be a plan. It needs to be some way of getting us from point A to point B. And when you talk to most clergy and they say, well, what's your point B? What's, what are you trying to train your people to do? And they'll say, to be more loving. What does that look like? What does that mean? What are we talking about? And so Jesus said, yeah, loving is important, but is there more? You know, what is the game? What's, what's the participant? And the third thing is it's done in community. So it's participating in community. And you can't be a Christian alone. And so you go into the New Testament, and I think there's like 82 different one another passages, something like that. You know, all these one another's, love one another, bear with one another, you know, lift up one another. So those are the, the key things that are happening. And so knowing that we have limited time, how did we begin to get things going uh, in Bristol, where we were? Well, one of the things our guys did, we had two guys in one community with their wives and little kids, and they discovered that the meeting place in that community was the local pub. And the local pub was a place, the pub is not like a bar, it's different in England. And so they would just go and start hanging out and start making friends and get to know people in the neighborhood and get to know people. And uh, so it was pretty cool. And one of the things that they began to do was uh, connect with lots of other young people that also were hanging out at the bar, at the pub. 
And they began to uh, get to know them. Uh, after a while, uh, they discovered that almost no one in their neighborhood was married. In England, people live together, but they don't get married. Being married is unusual in England. Even if you're older, people still just move in together now. So the number of marriages in the Church of England is way, way down because the culture is saying all you need to do is just move in. And uh, one of the things that they talked about is and they said, well, you're married. And they said, yeah, why are you married? And they began to talk about why they were married. And a lot of these people have been partnered, you know, for some time. Some, many of them had small little children. And one of the things that they discovered is most of those people were raised in families that were also broken families. And so they were repeating what they had experienced in their own upbringing. And they began to talk about the fact that what they really wanted to do was to find out how, how do you have a relationship that can last so that my kids don't have to have, go through what I went through as a kid growing up when my parents divorced and so forth. And bit by bit they began to talk about that. So they began to engage. They began to listen to what people were saying. And they began to build relationships. And so when their wife came over, the couples came over and they had dinner together, you know, I say, yeah, you've been talking about this, you know. Why don't you ask my wife about that, you know. And they began to talk about marriage and relationships that would last. Well, what they decided to do is that two of our guys in that neighborhood and two in the neighboring neighborhood came together, and they prayed and they listened for the Holy Spirit, and they said, Holy Spirit, what's the door that you want to open for us in this community? And they became convinced it was about this area of relationships and parenting and marriage. And so they decided that they would have a group, and they called it Guys Behaving Dadly. Guys Behaving Dadly. And so they, they got about six or eight friends that they knew, and they said, would you guys like to get together? Uh, you know, we got this church over here. They have a, a hall we can use. Uh, we'll have a time when we'll play some games with our kids, and then the wives will come, or the partners will come, and take the kids, and they'll go off and do something with the kids, and we'll, we'll just have a chance to be together as dads. And we'll talk about stuff that makes for success and sustaining of relationships. And would you be interested in that? Say, so, yeah, I, I really would like to do that. And so they did. The first time they came, they thought they were going to have like four or five people. They had 20 show up from the neighborhood because those guys started talking to their friends. But when we left England, uh, there were about 80 that were meeting uh, once a month for guys behaving badly. And uh, what, they were, what they would do is that they would have topics that they would talk about. Presenters weren't always Christian, but our guys would come and say, well, I'd like to share with you, would it be all right next time we meet if I could share with you the thing that made the biggest difference in my marriage and in my family? And it's about faith. Would you be open to my, to, for me to be able to share my experience? Well, we had let them share their experience, so they said, sure. 
And so when you talk about values, values are almost always spiritually based. And so it was wonderful. They began to then uh, share. Uh, what began to happen is uh, more and more the, the, that guys behaving dadly group became a fishing pond, if you will, to invite those that were interested into a missional community where we were more direct about talking about Christian faith. And so what we did in our Christian communities is we had to have a roadmap. And I think that's one thing that most churches don't have. They don't have a strategic roadmap that their people can follow to know how to enter into on the job, by the book, in a team, by the spirit, how to do this. And so I've, some of you have heard me talk about this before. But a lot of our people said, well, we don't have space in our lives to do this kind of extra stuff. And what we said was, this isn't about adding stuff to your life. It's about bringing the Lord into the things you're already doing in your life. It's about bringing the Lord into your marriage. It's about bringing it into your children and child rearing. It's about, you know, bringing it into your office where you are. And so what we said is, how do we make space to create space for the Holy Spirit to begin to move in a situation. And so we use the acronym SPACE to have five spiritual disciplines as a springboard. This isn't, you know, the, the, this is the, the beginning point, but it worked really well for us. And so SPACE is all about story seeing where your story and God's story interconnect. And so we did a particular kind of Bible study, uh, sometimes called orality, other, other also called discovery Bible story, which is an inductive Bible story that really is all about storytelling and getting people to interact in their lives with, with the Scripture. And it's wonderful because even non-Christians can do it. And it comes from the mission field. And so this is about adopting the narrative of Jesus. And then using that kind of Bible study, uh, this is hard for priests because we spend all of our time learning how to teach the Bible. And so the idea we have is that I will teach, people will come and sit and listen to what I have to say, and it'll be good. And it will be, there'll be good stuff that'll come from it. But the difficulty is it won't make disciples. I was known as a teacher and I discovered I could say I was going to teach a class and I could have a crowd show up. But then I discovered that what the crowd was is people that liked to attend classes. It wasn't necessarily people who wanted to go the next step. And I said, well, if the classes is helpful, how do we move from being classroom-oriented to being ministry-oriented? And I had to really struggle with that a lot. P was prayer, teaching our people how to pray, particularly how do you hear the voice of the Lord? Remember Jesus, the only thing the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them was what? Pray. To pray. Because they figured out that when Jesus went alone to be with the Father, that when he spent that time with the Father and he came back, amazing things began to happen. Throughout John's gospel, there are these little bitty sentences that are repeated again and again and again, and they're so small that we don't realize how significant they are. Because in John's gospel, Jesus says, 
I only do what the Father's given me to do. I only say what the Father has given me to say. Well, how did God give him something to say? It was in prayer where Jesus was listening for God's voice. And so this is what the Holy Spirit is all about. Leading us, guiding us, giving us direction. And so how can we hear the voice of the Lord? How can we begin to be obedient to the things that he shows us to do? This is what the guys behaving badly did. They got together and they began to say, Lord, where's the open door? What do you want us to do? And they began to talk and had a sense that God wanted them to do this dad thing uh, and make it available and invite other people and just see what happens. And God's blessed it. It's really been great. A is acts of blessing and service. And so one of the things that we were doing in that was uh, Jesus came. The last thing Jesus did as he ascended into heaven is what? He looked at the people and he blessed them. And so Jesus has blessed us to be a blessing to others. This permeates the scripture. And how many people like to be blessed? Yeah, blessing's fun. How many of you love to do evangelism? Some do, but the exciting thing about blessing, you see, is everyone loves to be blessed. My wife and I were, about a month or six weeks ago, we were in Massachusetts, and we were sitting in a diner, and there was a, a waitress there, and my wife just has this inner listening to the Lord that, that she does all the time. And so this young, attractive, blonde hair, cute waitress was waiting on us. And my wife put down her knife and fork and looked at her and said, do you need a blessing? And she just started to tear up. I said, yeah, I really need a blessing in my life. And Patty said, what's going on? She said, I was engaged to a guy. And this time I was doing everything right because I wanted this relationship to really work. And so didn't sleep with him, you know, wanted to lay the foundations to have a good relationship. And last week he left me. And so Patty looked at me and said, Ron, pray for her. God will bless her. <laughs> and so we prayed with Kim. And then Patty afterwards said, leave her a $50 tip so that she would remember that even in the midst of her pain, God loved her enough to send these two weird people in that wanted to bless her and wanted to be with her. Well, one of the things that we did in our covenant groups, in our missional communities, is we committed to blessing three people a week. And so the issue then is, how do you know who to bless? You have to pray and listen for the voice of the Lord. Lord, who do you want me to bless today? Who do you want me to bless this week? How do you want me to bless them? And so you begin then to listen for the Holy Spirit and cooperate and be obedient to what the Holy Spirit gives you to do, and you just do it and see what happens. And the thing that's amazing about that is that the Holy Spirit begins to work in all kinds of amazing ways. When you bless someone, what you are doing is you are intentionally releasing the power of God's love in a situation. 
right? You're intentionally releasing the power of God's love in a situation. And so when we begin to do that, what we discover is the Holy Spirit is as active out in the world as he is in the church. And so, you know, the Lord, who do you want me to bless? Well, bless Jerry, who's in the desk next to me at work. How do you want me to bless him? Well, just do something nice for him. What's something he likes? You know, go to a ball game together. Do whatever God gives you to do, you do it. And so what you discover then is what happens. So when our groups met, one of the things we always did is we did those Bible stories where we could help people see where their story connects with God's story. We, we, we learned how to pray and listen for the voice of the Lord. And then we would say, okay, how many of you people bless somebody this week? Well, I have to tell you, it took a while before people started to do, do it. Nine months before our, my British friends would do it. And uh, but then they began to do it. And then they began to share, well, what happened? Most of the time, great stuff happened. Sometimes it didn't work out quite the way they wanted. What did we learn from it? What did you learn from that situation? See, we'll celebrate. Well, that has to do with, obviously, celebrate Holy Communion, but we celebrated birthdays. We celebrated anniversaries. We celebrated the, the Queen's uh, centennial, well, not her centennial, her jubilee. We, we threw a block party for our block. Everybody wore crowns and all kinds of good stuff to celebrate Elizabeth's uh, jubilee as queen. Uh, they made us honorary British citizens for the day so we could join in. <laughs> and so all kinds of fun stuff. We had a ball. We had a lot of fun together. And in fact, that's one of the things the neighbors noticed is that everybody would be coming and going from our home where our missional community met. And they say, you guys sure seem to have a lot of fun together. And I say, oh, yeah, we love it. And then they're at the pub, they talk to somebody, oh, you're in that group. Oh, you guys seem to have a lot of fun. Hey, you want to come? We're doing something this weekend. I'd love to have you and your family come and join us. So it's great. E is eat. And so eating uh, is really critical. So again, you had to learn how to pray. We committed to eating with three people every two weeks. And what that meant was, could be coffee hour break at, at the office, it could be having lunch with somebody, it could be having somebody come over to your house, uh, it could be anyone, it's just sharing food somehow with someone. And so again, teaching our people, who, Lord, who do you want me to uh, connect with? What happens when you eat with someone? Yeah, when you bless someone, that can be kind of a quick thing. I had a, had a lady at the, at the uh, supermarket that I always went to when I checked my groceries out. And I just had a sense that life was hard for her. And so I said, you know, I had my collar on one day, and I said, can I pray a blessing for you? She said, yeah, would you? And I said, came back and said, I've been praying for you every day this week. Really? How's it been going? She said, oh, this week's been better. How's it been better? You know, but what happens when you eat? You start building more of a relationship with someone. It takes more time. You then, rather than if you're blessing someone, spiritually you're here, they're there. You're the giver, they're the receiver. But when you have a time when you eat with someone, you're both sitting at the same level as you begin to share and eat with one another. It's very interesting that in the New Testament, Jesus said, 
Uh, there's three great Son of Man statements uh, in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Son of Man came not to serve, excuse me, came, Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And you know what the third one is? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. The first two were the theology of why Jesus came. The third one was Jesus' methodology. Did you notice that Jesus was always, he was eating with sinners and Gentiles. You know, he got nailed by the Pharisees again and again and again. But that eating and that connecting, that building of personal relationships was really essential. Let me just say a couple of things about this. The reason why this was important is that these were the things that formed the DNA of our mission, of our discipleship group. And when we came together, these were the things that we committed to doing. And so when we got together, we always had story time. Uh, our missional community uh, was multi-generational, from two years old to 82. Uh, we had teenagers. Uh, our teens loved the group. We had about four teens. They never missed because they loved doing the real stuff with adults. They loved to see adults working out their faith. We were modeling for them what it meant to be a person of faith. What do we often do in the church? Send the kids off. These kids were invited with us. Last time I was in England, Emma Bewley was one of our teenagers. Our teenagers learned how to listen for the voice of God much better than the adults did. They taught the adults how to do it because they didn't have as many hang-ups. And Emma was one of our teenagers. Uh, I saw on Facebook she just got her master's degree uh, this past week. And she's a civil engineer. She loves to pour concrete. <laughs> she, she whacks eloquent about what you can do with shaping concrete and building all this stuff. And so the last time I was in England, I saw Emma and I said, Emma, you know, how's it going for you? And she told me all about pouring concrete. And I said, really? And I said, yeah, oh, it's great. And I said, well, I'm glad you found something you love. And uh, then I said, well, how's it going for you spiritually? She says, oh, I planted a church. And I said, where'd you plant your church? She says, in my dorm. I said, what are you doing? She said, S-P-A-C-E. And so she has eight other girls that she's drawn together that are just replicating. This is easy to do, it's easy to remember as we learn, as we allow the Holy Spirit to teach us how to do this. And so I was, I was thrilled. That, that made my month right there when Emma said that. And uh, the thing that was exciting about it is as people do this and we keep bumping up against it, I, I said, for instance, that it took nine months for my reserve British group to start blessing other people. The key that came through is I noticed that a lot of the British humor, at least in this place where I was, was kind of humor that cut, it, it kind of tore other people down to some degree. And I, I said, well, you know, I'm an American, so I may not understand this, and so forgive me if I'm getting this wrong, but could I ask a question? And I said, I've, I've been struggling. Why is it so difficult for you to bless other people. And the response that came back is, we don't bless each other, why should we bless people that are not Christians? 
I said, really? And I said, yeah. And I said, well, I've noticed in your humor that you kind of, it's a little bit about tearing people down a little bit, making fun of things. And I said, do you think that's what Jesus would want? And so we got into this big discussion. And within two weeks, they were blessing people. Never in a million years would I have been able to teach on that. It was something the Holy Spirit surfaced as the people kept coming up against this call to bless other people. And the thing to make a long story short is when Patty and I left England, our missional community had grown to 60 people. Why? It wasn't Patty and me. I was busy teaching all the time. It was the people in the missional community that were doing it. And we were having fun. And I can tell you lots of stories. Let me tell you one other story, and then let me just open up for questions. Uh, we did this in my last church in California. And my last church in California was one where, when I came to be the rector, uh, was dying. Uh, average age was between 60 and 80. And a lot of people retiring, selling their expensive Southern California homes and moving to Arizona and Nevada and places like that. And uh, I, in time, began to talk, teach a lot about prayer. I began to teach a lot about, you know, we're blessed to be a blessing. Uh, I began to talk about the fact that we're all players in the kingdom of God, that God has a way he wants to use every one of us. And so I began with a small group of people who were open. So a lot of the people that I began with, uh, I played golf with. I'm a terrible golfer. And so I went to a par three course, and I'd never held a golf club in my life, and spent 90 bucks to get eight lessons on this is a golf ball, you, you know. And, but I noticed that a lot of the men in the congregation played golf. And so I said, you know, I'm just learning how, but would you like to come out and we'll go on the par three course? And so, you, you know, you get to talk a lot with people when you're hunting for your golf ball. And uh, so bit by bit, I began to lead some of these guys to the Lord, and we began to form a missional community. Uh, and although we didn't have this at that time, we were doing some of these same kind of activities. And uh, one of the people that was in one of our groups was a woman named Mary Golding. And I think some of you may have heard me share this story before, but Mary is one of my heroes. Mary was from, originally from England. Uh, one Sunday uh, after church, I got a phone call from Mary. You always knew where you stood with Mary. And Mary said, Father Ron. And I said, yes, Mary. She said, I want to talk to you. I immediately began thinking, what did I say at church? You know, what did I do that I shouldn't have done? You know, what, you know, should I have done that I didn't do? And so Mary said, Tomorrow, can you come over tomorrow for a cup of tea, being British? And so I said, sure. So I went over to Mary's house, and we had a cup of proper English tea, which is not the same as American tea. And Mary said, I've been listening to you. Well, when you're a preacher, that's a good thing, uh, I hope. And I said, well, what's God been saying to you, Mary? And she said, I'm 94 years old. I can't see, so I can't drive. I'm basically homebound. And you've been telling me that God has a way he wants to use every one of us for his kingdom. What can I do? And filled with wisdom, I said, 
I don't know. I said, Mary, why don't we pray? Why don't you pray and ask the Lord how he might want to use you? And Mary was very faithful. She always did morning and evening prayer. She had it memorized pretty much. And so Mary did that. And about a week and a half later, I got a phone call from Mary. She said, Father Ron, come over for a cup of tea. And I said, okay. And so I went over to Mary, and she says, I think I know what God wants me to do. I said, what is it? She says, well, I prayed the way you told me to, and then I wrote down the things that I felt God was saying to me. And I noticed that every morning when I woke up that uh, these same names kept being in my mind. And so I wrote the names down, and I began to pray over them. And she said, it suddenly occurred to me that they were all friends of mine who were also older and homebound and couldn't get out much. And I then said, well, Lord, what am I supposed to do, acts of service and blessing, to bless these people? And God told me that I was supposed to call them on the phone, and I was supposed to say, how'd it go last night? Because for older people, you know, nighttime is often a hard time. And then she would say, is there anything that needs to be done around your home? So I got this list of all these things that, that they need help with. And then I would always say a little prayer with them and share just a brief scripture with them to bless them. He says, Father Ron, I got this list of stuff. Do you think people in our church would be willing to help these folks? And filled with wisdom, I said, I don't know. Mary, would you be willing to get up in church on Sunday and share what you've been doing and what God is saying to you? Mary has never, ever in her life given a witness. Now, if I would have called it a witness, she wouldn't have done it. But I interviewed Mary, and I said, you know, Mary and I, I preached a sermon on blessed to be a blessing, and I said, well, Mary and I have been talking about this. So Mary, could you come and let, answer a few questions? And so... Mary talked about her friends and talked about the needs that they had. And uh, then Mary said, I'm, I've been praying that God would raise up some people to help me meet the needs of my friends that can't get out, that are basically homebound. And uh, I'm praying that some of you might be willing to do that. And then I intervened. I said, now, wait a minute. I don't want anybody responding out of the emotion of the minute. What I want you to do is to pray about it. And if you feel God is calling you to do this, then to call the office on Monday, and that means that you're working out of a call of God, out of a covenant commitment, to actually be there and do the things we're committing to do. Well, we had eight guys, mostly retired guys, got together, and they decided they were going to do this. And they formed our second missional community. They called themselves the Romeos, retired old men eating out. And uh, we met at Burger King every Thursday morning, and we had breakfast together, and then we would do a little Bible study together, then we would pray for the people, and then we'd get ready to go out and bless the people. And they would go out two by two, and they would fix light bulbs or windows or whatever needed to be done. And bit by bit, and we began to do this more and more people began to call. 
and uh, the church because those people began to tell other people that they knew that there was a church that would reach out and help people who were not its members. So we got these phone calls saying, do you, do you help people who are not members of your church? And my secretary was great. She said, oh, absolutely. We, we're a church that loves everybody. And so more and more people began to call. Well, the upshot of this is that numbers of the ladies in our congregation got really hacked because the men were doing this stuff. And I would talk about them in my sermons now and again. And the women were not involved. And they thought that this was not right at all. And so they got together, several of them, and got some of their friends, and they went over to have tea with Mary. And as they began talking with Mary and having a proper British tea, they got together, and one of them, as they were praying, had this vision of an English tea ministry, right? And they decided that what they would do is they would go around to all the people that the Romeos had been to, and they would then go and have a tea party celebration. And so they got English bone china. They had Mary teach them how to make a proper cup of English tea. She taught them how to make scones. She, they, they got little lace doily thingies. And so if people were in bed, they could put it on a TV tray or on the coffee table. And they just went around and just had a ball having tea parties with all of these people in the community. And more and more people began to call our church, saying, we heard that you send people and they'll visit with folks that are largely homebound. I work. I can't get to see my mom the way I'd like to. She's home alone a lot. Would your people be willing to go? And they said, sure. And so they would go and have a great time doing all these tea parties. And pretty soon, eventually what began to happen is some of these people that were homebound would say to their families, you know, I'd really like to go to that church where all those nice people are. Would you be willing to come and pick me up and take me to church on Sunday? So what are you going to say? No. And so they would come with their kids and grandkids. They would walk in the church. Sally, what are you doing here? John, oh, we thank you so much for helping me with this. And oh, Mary, we had such a good time at the tea party. I'm still talking about it. And you know what happened to our church? Now, I want you to realize that the reason why our church began to grow like crazy, we became known in the community as the Caring Church. Praise God. And the reason why we grew is because they had a pastor who was such a brilliant teacher that when the people came to church on Sunday morning, they were overwhelmed with his eloquence. And the pastor was such a great strategic planner that he, he planned out how to do this Romeo ministry and how to do the English tea ministry. We, we studied about how to do that in seminary. <laughs> I hope you feel that I'm, I'm joking, right? Who was it that did it? I had nothing to do with it whatsoever other than to draw people to, to the Lord. It didn't stop there our people began to internalize these spiritual disciplines. Two of our people happened to be at, at the uh, shopping center that was right across the street from our church. They noticed there were all these junior high kids bouncing around on Wednesday mornings, you know, at 10 o'clock. They said, what, these kids should be in school. And so they started talking to some of the store owners and say, what's going on with all these kids? And they say, well, the school... The junior high up the street was about 1,300 students. 
they always do teacher training on Wednesday morning. So the kids, parents still have to go to work, so the parents drop their kids off in the shopping center, give them some money so they can go get some breakfast or coffee or something, and they're running around all the stores creating havoc. And I said, really? And I said, yeah. Well, they came to me and said, Father Ron, we looked at that situation, and we feel God wants us to open up the church on Wednesday morning to all of these junior high kids. Do you think we could do that? And I said, I don't know. Let's ask the Lord. And I said, if we do it, we've got to have enough people that are willing to come and provide support to be with all these kids. And so we had people that were praying about, you know, should they be part of this? Went up to visit with the school principal. Said to the principal, we've noticed that there are all these kids running around the shopping center. And the principal says, oh, we know, we, we just don't know what to do. Uh, they're creating, getting in trouble, getting in problems. And I said, would you be open if we opened up our church and we had people there, we'll provide tutoring, we'll provide a simple breakfast for them, we'll have games for them to play. We had a whole bunch of different things that we had people that were committed to doing. And we'll have the kids come and stay with us until 11 o'clock when they go up to be at the school. I said, would you do that? Say, oh yeah, we'd love to do that. She notified every family in this school with 1,300 students that St. Luke's was open and there would be people there to take care of their kids. We had about 300 kids usually on a, Sunday mor on a Wednesday morning with us. And our kids from our youth group were there you know, they would interact with those kids. Some of them never been in a church. What's that building? Oh, that's our church. So what are you doing, church? That's where we worship God. Oh, can I go look at it? Sure. They come in. Oh, we're going on a retreat in two weeks. You want to come? What are you doing? Oh, we're going to go whitewater rafting, and then we're going to learn about God. You can come if you want. Really? Could I? Well, I'm just your parents. And they came. Well, the thing that was really amazing is every time a new family moved into the community that had junior high students, the principal of the school contacted them about our church. Again, they had such a strategically minded priest that was so brilliant in how to build <laughs> ministry. What's the point I'm trying to make? God uses everybody, and it's learning the spiritual disciplines that create space in our lives for the Holy Spirit to move. And it's gaining the confidence to listen to what the voice of the Lord is doing and to begin to step out in obedience. Our church grew and grew and grew. And the reason why is because we had a community of wonderful people that were committed to certain simple things, simple things that we were committed to learning and doing together. And these things shaped our community and our life in, in a powerful way. I have to tell you, one of the hardest things for me, being a bishop, is that our diocese, if you, as you probably know, is huge, from southern Ontario all the way into Kentucky. It's massive. And my wife and I don't have community. We're on the road almost every week. And so when you've lived with this kind of community, you have that kind of fellowship, uh, it, it becomes a part of you. And so Patty and I have really been praying 
Lord, how do we find community? We have community with each other, but we miss being a part of this, you know, and being with the different ages and things like that. And uh, so let me just stop there. Uh, you get the idea of what we're trying to say? It's being intentional and it's being strategic. It's creating the space for the Holy Spirit to begin to move in people's lives. So, amen. Story is Bible, so it's teaching people how to do a particular approach to Bible study that uh, is, uh, we used orality in England, they're now using discovery, which is the same idea. It's learning to ask certain questions of the scriptures and then allowing people to interact with those questions. Things would be story of the prodigal son. Which character in this story do you identify most with and why? Yeah. Well, there's all kinds of stories. And we had one, one person said, I identify with the lamb that was slaughtered. I said, why is that? And he says, I'm always giving him myself to all over the family, and I just feel like I'm, I'm, I'm just being crucified all the time. Wow, I never would have come up with that. And so, you know, the nice thing about that is with people that are not very far along in their spiritual walk or are not Christians, they have two big fears. One is fear that they might appear stupid because they don't know all this Bible stuff. The other fear that they have is they don't want to inadvertently offend, saying something that might offend someone. And so doing this kind of Bible study, and the idea behind orality is that orality moves, is the questions are designed, they're simple, to move from your head to your heart to your hands. So it's meant to move from just knowledge of the Bible, and that's where a lot of Bible studies kind of stop, to really moving into some kind of missional step that we have to take. So the next Sunday, the next time we got together as a group, we say, last time we got together, we read the story of the prodigal son. I wrote down the things that people said they felt God was calling them to do learning to listen to the voice of how many of you did what God asked you to do? What happened? Our story for this week is. So it's, it's having your story interact with God's story. So we could, that's a whole other workshop on how to do that. Any other questions? What strikes you about what I've said? Is it doable? Yeah. Because the big thing about this, people didn't have to add anything to their life. What they tried to do was they were learning to do was to bring the Lord into the life that they were already living. And as they did that, and particularly as they began to pray and listen for the Lord, they discovered that God was at work in all kinds of ways that they never realized before. And as they gained confidence to reach out to bless their friends in some way, God just began to do amazing things. Yeah. And it's fun. When you first started up these gatherings, was... say again? When you first started up these gatherings where you were doing this type of discipleship, um, it was once a week, I'm assuming, or once a month. 
we did it every other week. Yeah, one week was for them to meet in community, to get the teaching, to make commitments. The second week, theoretically, was to put into practice what we've learned. So we met about twice a month. What convinced people to make space in their schedules to actually start to show up? Teaching of Jesus. It's what Jesus wants for his people. And if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we somehow have to discover how do we hook into that. And so we had enough direction that people were willing to come and give it a try when we started. And uh, it, it was great. It took a while, but it, it, it happened. And so our first group grew to about 60, and then we multiplied leaders. You don't divide groups, you multiply leaders. Uh, our second group that we then had grew to 50 when we left England. And so it was, it was very exciting. And the key, again, is releasing the people of God into ministry. Because the group dynamics church growth statistics will tell you when you have a church of between 30 and 50 people, the, the dominant influence is the pastor. And if the pastor is not intentional about empowering the people, it's a small enough group where the people are comfortable letting the pastor do the ministry. And a lot of pastors like it that way because they can do the ministry. Uh, if you've never been trained or never experienced how to do this kind of thing, you know, you, you, it's a bit daunting, a little bit, because you're learning. We're all learning together. Uh, I think the other thing that's true is that many of our clergy, in, in fairness, the, the, are bivocational. And uh, one of the things that, that is true, uh, the, our bivocational clergy are my heroes and heroines, because they are giving way above and beyond the call. And we're, we're blessed to have so many wonderful clergy. And with the bivocational clergy, what the, those that I know that have done this discover that it makes their life a lot easier in the long run. But it's like getting a rocket off the launch pad. It takes more to get it off the pad, but once you get it off the pad and you're multiplying ministry, then a lot of stuff begins to happen where your life becomes easier. You're not carrying the whole weight of the ministry of the congregation. Any other questions? Um, how, how did uh, you get everybody involved? Was it just verbal communication among people that were just getting themselves involved and then they would tell people? I mean, or did you have other kinds of communication to make everybody aware of what, what, was, what was happening? Okay. And, Every church is different, so where you start, it can be different. And uh, one of the things, that I'll be very blunt here, most small groups are death on discipleship. Because most small groups, unless they have a very strong missional DNA and focus, turn in on themselves. And so I've been in churches where we've had small groups that's met for 25 years. When's the last time you brought someone to Christ? Well, we never have. 
When was the last time someone new came into your group? Oh, 1972. You know, and it isn't that they aren't loving people, and it isn't that they're not doing Bible study, but it's just their focus is on themselves rather than on the mission. And so what I try to do uh, generally is I pray like crazy and I ask Lord, who are the people do you want me to play golf with? Who are the people that you want me to start reaching out to? And when I get a small group, then uh, we begin. And when we have a testimony and a story to tell, then I would begin to have them share as part of a sermon. I said, Bill, last Sunday or last Wednesday when we got together in our, our group, what is it that you were talking about? And so the, the thing about changing the culture of a congregation is the tipping point in a congregation is about 24%. And when you get 24% of the people actively involved in a meaningful ministry, that's enough people that it changes the dynamics of the congregation. And so usually I start with those that want to start, that have a heart. I would say that every congregation I've been to, overwhelmingly, people are hungering for something that will help them enter into a deeper life of discipleship. Not everybody, but every congregation has those people that are hungering for that. And when we have something like this that's been thought out, that has a plan and a purpose, it's intentional and it's strategic and it will help you get from point A to point B, people are willing, some people are willing to make the time for that, even in England. Yeah. So, so I would start with a small group, start with those that want to start. I wouldn't stop all your small groups and I wouldn't organize everybody, but you know, begin to learn what you need to learn. And again, let the Lord lead you as you pray and listen for his voice. So, everybody okay? Well, I hope this has been helpful. I, I just, as you can tell, I'm passionate about this. So I thank you for giving me the opportunity to come and share. It's been a joy. <laughs>